Welcome to the British American Business Council Los Angeles podcast. The BABCLA is a vibrant organization and part of the largest transatlantic business network celebrated across the US and UK for its important business and social connections. Each episode, you'll hear enlightening interviews on timely subjects with British and American experts across industries. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for listening today. My name is James Langridge. I'm the president of the British American Business Council here in Los Angeles. I'm absolutely delighted to have you along today. It sounds like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm, I'm excited for that as well. I'm sure everyone who is listening is as well. But this morning, today, we have the wonderful Mr. Dean Stott on. I'm going to let Dean introduce himself shortly. But um, it's just great to have you along, Dean. We've got a wonderful set of questions for you today. We've got a lot of people listening in. I encourage anyone with questions, please reach out to me at the bottom of the screen in the Q&A section. Write me a question. And either we'll bring you in live or we'll ask it for you and we'll try and get through everybody. I have my own questions as well. And Dean, feel free to talk about whatever you want to talk about. So without further ado, good morning, Dean. It's great to have you. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, no, my absolute pleasure. Dean, I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm going to let you tell everyone a little bit about you, but Dean is a former member of the SBS, which is the Special Boat Service. I believe your motto, and again, is fortune favours the bold. Is that correct? I always used to think it was fortune favours the brave. No, it's actually, it used to be not by strength, by guile, and it's now strength and guile. See, I told you I'd ruin it, (laughs) but I'm glad you got it right. At least Thank you didn't you very who much. dares wins. You know what I mean? I mean, I would be upset. <laughs> now, I know that's a big no-no. That's those other guys, right? We won't talk about them. <laughs> Dean, again, thanks so much for coming along today. You, you have an incredible story. And anyone listening in, if you're looking and watching it live now, this is Dean's new book, Relentless. It's coming out. Dean, when's your book out? So in the, in the UK, it's out already. But in the US, it's um, the 2nd of February. Wonderful. We'll get into that a little bit more as we go through this, but Dean has, he has a wonderful story. It's in his new book, Relentless. February 2nd, it's coming out here in the US. It's already available in, in the UK. I believe you can download it on Audible as well, which I'd recommend. I have looked at it, so I've got a leg up on everyone else listening today, but we're going to let Dean tell us. But Dean, before we even go any further, tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and how you started out, because it's an unbelievable career. Yeah, so I, I was born into a military family uh, myself. My father was in the military, my grandparents in the military. So I was very much immersed in that environment. So being what we, we call it a pads brat, so um, a, a child of someone from the military, we used to move every three years, uh, you know, and then we ended up, my parents split up at a young age. My, I went with my mother up to, to Manchester. And I was in a homeless home with my mum and my two sisters at the age of eight in a, in an area called Moss side in Manchester, which at the time in the mid eighties was the roughest estate in, in the UK probably. So from a young age, I was, I was fighting with my fists in the playground. Uh, you know, I was getting um, not dragged up, but my father actually got custody of me and my sisters two years later. And we moved back down to a town in Hampshire called Aldershot, which was the home of the British army. And there was very much the parachute regiment. Um, again, being immersed in that environment, you know, I was surrounded by the military, but it was never something I wanted to pursue myself. I always wanted to be a fireman. But when I finished school in 93, there was about 2,000 applicants for one job. And so I thought, well, 
I may go get some experience somewhere. So I approached my father and I told him of my intentions of joining the military. You normally expect someone like that to give you some warm, comforting words, but the words that I received were you would last two minutes. Um, I don't know whether it was because I was about five foot seven and nine and a half stone, but you know, I took those words and rather than sort of dwell on them, I decided to use that as a motivation and prove them wrong. And as my story sort of unravels, you'll, you'll tend to find that I tend to go against the grain um, of people. You, you can either argue with someone to their blue in the face or actually go prove them wrong. So I joined the military, I joined the Royal Engineers as my father and uh, was, and by the age of, at the age of 17, by the age of 21, I was a para commando diver and PTI. I'd done every arduous job in the Royal Engineers and the only option available to me was UK Special Forces. Coming from an army background, you had to go to the Special Air Service. But when I applied, they'd opened the doors, try service. So the SBS were now taking uh, candidates from the army. For the listeners that aren't aware, the actual selection process is six months long, but it's actually joint. The SAS and the SBS is the same. It's not separate anymore. Um, so much to the disgust of my friends in the SAS, I volunteered for the SBS. And the reason for that was I'd spent eight years with Free Commander Brigade. I was the senior diving instructor for the army. I was very much comfortable in that marine environment. I loved being in the water. And six months later, I was successful. I became the first army candidate to go SBS, uh, not SAS. And again, you know, a lot of people telling me you can't do it, you know, you shouldn't do it and things like that. But now, I think a few years later, 15% of the SBS now is from the army. So you sort of open up those floodgates and those opportunities, give people sort of an opportunity that there's other options. I joined at a time on the height of war and terror. You know, we were in Afghanistan, we were in Iraq, you know, we were rescuing hostages off the east coast of Africa. I was you know, literally living and breathing what these children play on their computers, Call of Duty. So for me, I'd reached the pinnacle in my career. You know, I was doing what I loved. I was surrounded by like-minded individuals. I was thoroughly enjoying life. Unfortunately, I, um, yeah, I had a tragic accident. I was doing a parachute training in Oman two weeks before going on another Afghan tour. I was doing what's called a hey-ho jump, a high altitude, high opening jump. So you exit the aircraft, 15,000 feet, parachute opens, and you travel up to 50 kilometers to the target area. I've done hundreds of these jumps. This was the fourth jump of the day, normal procedure, exit the aircraft, but this time my leg freakishly got caught up in the line above my head. I couldn't clear my leg in time, and my leg got pulled up over my head and to the right. Thankfully, it didn't take my leg completely off, but damage sustained. I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus, my hamstring, my calf, and my quad. So I had to Good also... God, that must have hurt. Yeah, because of altitude at 15,000 feet, you're on the limits of oxygen. So I was vomiting because of the pain, but I was also drifting in and out of consciousness. But the remainder of the oh team goodness. was unaware there was a problem. So my first challenge was to stick with the team and then land it. Because if I, you know not landed properly, just, I could have damaged the, the good leg. It was a great landing, it was a one-legged landing, <laughs> but unfortunately, the damage sustained ended my career. So everything I'd known, I was 33 years old at this point, everything I'd known from a young boy being in that military environment, 16 years yeah. in the military myself, was that sort of community. And it was almost like, no, thank you for your time, you know, there's the door. So we'll, we'll touch so on... Before we, take any, before we go yeah. any further there, Dean, because I've got some questions for you, but that's a, that's a great backstory. I mean, incredible. 
But let's talk a little bit more about your, your career in the armed forces. I know it might not, I know it's difficult to discuss some of it, but let's talk about the specifics of actually getting into the SBS. Now, that's not something that you, it's not like being at a delicatessen and you pull a ticket and you wait for your number to come up and you're in, right? You make your order. There's a process, okay? Tell people, I mean, how hard is it? If for an average person who is fit and healthy, they go to the gym a few times a week, they can run a few miles. Just give us an, an example of what it's like. So, yes, yeah, so the selection process, it, the, you know, the title itself is select, you know, selection. It's a six month process. Everyone thinks it's physical. You know, what you see on the TV, Hollywood and things like that, they perceive that you have to be six foot eight and be able to bent press 240 pounds. It's not like that at all. Um, a lot of the guys in there are very gray and very, very unassuming. So the first phase of selection is four weeks and it's called the aptitude, which is the hills phase. So basically a Bergen on your back day after day, you've got to reach checkpoints, certain deadlines, and it's, it's doesn't seem that fast, but it's four kilometers an hour, which doesn't seem that fast, but four kilometers an hour as you're looking down on a map in front of you. So whether there's a mountain in front of you or, or not, you've got to move at 4K an hour. But you're carrying up to 70 to 80 pound on your back and you're doing about 25, 30 kilometers uh, a day. So naturally, you're going to start get, picking up injuries. There's certain test marches where you have to hit the, the timelines. Otherwise, that's you gone. So within a short period of four... It's as simple as that. If you don't make it, you're out. That's it. There's no, there's no second yeah. chance. You don't make it, you're out. You, you get two attempts to selection because there's obviously guys, some guys tend to come on um, and not know too much about selection and they're not prepared. So they end up wasting a life. So they do have an opportunity to, to go again. Or you may naturally get injured. You know, you can imagine the damage on your knees and your backs and people falling over and, and getting injuries. So that naturally you're losing a lot of guys as a natural attrition there. You know, for example, we started our course with 200 guys. There's two courses a year. There's a winter course and there's a summer course. Once you've got through that phase, it's then all the, the continuation training. The big one then is the jungle. Spend six weeks in the jungle. But everything you've learned up until now in the military, you're almost starting again, you know, because the, the special forces have their own standard operational procedures, which isn't the same as, as I call the green army. So you need to be able to retain information as well. So you've got guys who are physically strong, but if they're not that bright and can't be able to retain information, then they're not suitable uh, for the job. You then, there's certain things, you know, you've got interrogation, you've got your parachute and you're learning about new communications equipment. This goes on for, for a six month process. So in my course, we had 200 start and by the end, eight finish. Um, eight, unbelievable. Yeah, you, and there's only two courses a year. So there's not many guys that come through. And you can imagine that the issues that the special forces have, especially during the, the conflicts, you've got those that are naturally retiring. You've got those that have been killed, those that have been injured, who are struggling to get enough guys through. And the great thing about the special forces, and I went, is they will not lower that bar. Regardless how many people, they will not lower that bar. There's enough, there's enough operations and there's enough to take on all 200 if they're successful. But that's one thing that they don't do. They don't lower the bar to, to bring in numbers, which is great. That's incredible. So when you get in, talk about a little bit about the rivalry. I gotta believe there's some rivalry with the, the boys over the SAS. But what about international rivalry? I read in your book, 
you were on off, on an operation and, and you were walking up and down a mountain, you and your buddies, and then uh, some of our American friends were there as well. And, you know, just tell a little bit more about what that's like when you're actually in the field. I think there's always going to be rivalries. You know, your Marines and the Paras as rivals, the SAS and the SPS. You know, I always get the, I always get the question, you know, what... Who's the best? And I always, I always joke, I say SAS surprised the average soldier, SPS slightly better soldier, when in fact, we know that we're mutually just as good as each other because we have all gone through that same selection process. Then, obviously, when you then introduce international special forces, that's when it starts getting a bit... Sure. Because we have a selection process. So I know that when I'm working with guys from the SAS or other guys from the SPS, they've been through, you know, an arduous course... But the thing is, the Delta Force and SEALs here in America, they took their selection process from the UK. They've adopted it from us. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was actually adopted from the UK Special Forces, how they've done that. So ours is obviously older and, and dated. But yeah, naturally, you're going to have, you know, that international rival. But the thing is, it's, it's good banter. You know what I mean? You're all, yeah, sure. you're all doing the things for the same cause. You've got the same objectives and things like that. You know, obviously, our budget isn't as great as what the Americans have. And we used to be nicknamed the borrowers because we would literally would just be borrowing equipment. But one of the great things about UK guys is, you know, regardless of the budget, we will make it happen. And that's the sort of problem, really, with, with the defence cuts is the fact they make defence cuts, but we still achieve our aim any way possible. We will achieve our aim. And because they've lowered the budget, they then lower it again. So there's going to be, become a point where, well, we can't be operational because we just don't have enough budget. Whereas... The U.S., their budget is, is huge. Yeah, it is incredible. I've heard that before. So I know we've got a lot to talk about. I'm not going to just stay on this one point, but I've got a couple more quick questions. But Dean, tell us what you can, but when you're getting ready, when you're going into an operation, how do you prepare yourself? You're going in, you're preparing yourself, you're coming out, you're decompressing. Yeah. How do you do that? Do you do something as a group? Is it an individual thing? I think obviously everyone's individuals anyway. You know, some people will react differently to what they see or what they've done. Right. You know, we talked about the selection process, which is six months long. That six months gets you to the start point. You then join your unit and then you are, you know, one of the ethos of special forces, the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. You are continuously training, training, rehearsing, rehearsing. So when it comes to the day of the race, you know, and you're inserted by helicopter or parachute, it almost becomes second nature. You know, when the rounds start coming down, it's almost like things start slowing down. But you don't think about the potential scenarios and consequences. You have an objective, and that's your, your main aim, to protect your team, to achieve the objective. And it, everything just becomes second nature. It's not until really you're extracting that you really get a chance to evaluate what's just happened or what you've just seen. Right. Um, but you need to get yourself into the right mindset on the way in. I used to joke, you know, we sort of have like our little iPods and things like that. And on the way in, you know, ACDC, Metallica. But then on the way out, there needs to be a come down. And, uh, you know, it'd be like Enya or Leona Lewis or something. Like <laughs> but one of the things, you know, one of the reasons we're the best special forces in the world is not because we have the, the best training and the best caliber of guys. It's because we're always evolving. We're always learning from our mistakes. So one of the key things we used to do before we'd even go clean our weapons or get showered, we would have what's called a hot debrief. And I think this is great for like corporates and other businesses. And the three questions were what worked, what didn't work. And if we were going to do it again, what would we do differently? So when we're coming back, we're almost 
analyzing what we've done so for that hot debrief you then the following day 24 hours later when you've had time to absorb more we then go through yeah. the process uh, so we're always learning always evolving we don't get things right all the time but we just sort of learn from our, our mistakes wonderful you had a very decorated career we thank you for your service we really do you got to rub shoulders with a, a well-known royal family member prince harry and you, you do have a, a, I understand you have quite a friendship with him. What can you yeah. tell us a little bit about Harry and, and getting to know him? How was that? What was that like? Yeah, so I, I went on a, a forward air controllers course in 2007. So forward air controller or JTAC, Joint Tactical Air Controller. Basically, when you're on the ground and you need air support, you're calling in the aircraft, the helicopters, the drones, the fighters. So this was 2007, August 2007, and this is when Harry was about to go on his first tour to Afghanistan. So he couldn't really just go on tour. So his commanding officer, who's an ex-SAS guy, said, well, look, go on this course and you can be the regimental forward air controller. So he, he was there, obviously, on day one. And I remember the, the commandant, every man and his dog turned up for this opening address. He'd probably never even been there before, just to get a bit of FaceTime. And, um, no, Harry left the room came in and they came in and said, look, treat him like one of the others, he gets no preferential treatment. You know, Harry came back in the room and um, halfway through the first lecture, he, he mentioned something and I, I sort of made a comment, which was like military humor. And you could see people's faces like, how's he gonna react? And he turned around, smiled, saw my beret. But then that was it, the, the course instructors that, right, you two, you're all gonna get parted off. So we just got parted off for the six weeks. and. I did. I just saw him as a, another student, another guy from the military. Yes, he has obviously everything else. He has a, an exceptional family, but he was very comfortable in that environment. It's probably the closest he could be to a human as possible, a human being, in the fact that no one was judging his decisions, didn't have the media around him. He could be himself. And so, yeah, so that was 2007. And we've just maintained that relationship 13 years on, still very much do do a lot together well that's wonderful and he's out here now and so are you so yeah. who knows do you guys ever speak we were still in communications obviously with the the covid spikes it's difficult to um we don't want to sort of compromise anything as well but yeah very much you know from his initial declaring that he was going to be stepping back in january i ended up doing 25 tv interviews talking about the benefits you know because having worked with him in the Royal Foundation before, which we'll touch on with, with the mental health campaign, I understood there's a lot of red tape and, and protocol working with the Royal family. So I was trying to promote that him stepping back with Megan, their philanthropy work-wise, there's a lot more opportunities. So yeah, so from January onwards, we've been in regular communications. Oh, wonderful, great. Well, you're in LA now, you're in California. We, we're grateful to have you here. It's, uh, we were talking before, the weather is definitely a nice part of living here. I think you said 27 degrees yesterday or 80 degrees, whoever, you know, I'm, I still get the, the counts wrong. But it is a beautiful time of year and everyone's getting ready for the holidays. Now, Dean, obviously, when you had your accident, you transitioned into a different kind of career path. And one day, I guess you were just laying around and decided, you know what? I'm going to get on my bike. I'm going to ride for the 14,000 mile uh, round trip. Sorry, one way, I believe, bike yeah. trip to break some records. I mean, it just did you just wake up and think you wanted to do that? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, so obviously leaving the military, you know, without sounding like Liam Neeson, people with our skill sets is, is, the, is the private security industry. So my wife was eight months pregnant as well at the time. So a lot of pressure on me to like be able to support my family. But I quickly identified in the private security industry, there was a lot of these big companies offering these services when in fact you start scraping the surface, there was nothing in place. So I was trying to find a niche within that industry. I couldn't, I wasn't comfortable with just joining a company, doing a, a rotation three months in, three months out. So I did, a, I specialize in crisis management evacuation planning. And, you know, I did a lot of this in the Middle East and, and North Africa. And it's sort of, without going over all the stories, in 2014, I single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy out of Libya on my own, 18 military and four diplomats. So I came home from wow. that. Yeah, I came home from that trip and my wife had highlighted to me that I'd only been home 21 days in a 365-day calendar. So for me, you know, this was, this was now um, nearly four years after leaving the military. So that really, I hadn't come to terms with the fact that I'd left the special forces. I was trying to match that adrenaline rush that I had when I was in, not realising that I'd left. So my wife was a property developer and she said, look, come do property developing with me. The period, this period that from leaving the military to now, I neglected my own physical well-being. I was so focused on getting the jobs done and, and work it. So my injured leg was two kilos lighter than my good leg. And um, oh, so, so I just bought a push bike off Amazon, just cycled to and from the office. It's only about eight miles there, eight miles back. But straight away, just being physically active again, I felt a lot better. But you can imagine with my backstory, and we've only covered some of the stories, you know, I wasn't really, yeah, no. I wasn't really interested in the heating system or the plumbing system or, or, or these architectural drawings. And um, my wife could see that glaze over my eyes and she's like, right, you need to do something. I'm not saying smuggle people across borders. So it was about a month before my 40th birthday. And I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. I was getting a bit of a midlife crisis. I've always fancied doing a world record. And um, she said, well, what in? I said, well, well, cycling seems good. It doesn't seem to be impacting my injury. I knew mentally I potentially had it, you know, because of what I'd done before. So having only cycled 20 miles, I applied for the world record for the world's longest road, which is from southern Argentina to northern Alaska, which is 14,000 miles. So it's the equivalent of cycling from London to Sydney, and then another 4,000 miles. Six weeks later, Guinness said, yes, you've been successful on your, in your application. So also during this period of leaving the military, I did a lot of charity work, especially for the military charities. So I'm an ambassador for the British Legion. I was an ambassador for the SBS Association. And Harry had done some stuff with me as well. He'd been guests on some of my events and tables. So I, I rang him up and I told him, look, I'm going to cycle the world's longest road. You know, what charity should we do it for? And this was back in 2016. So what, what did Harry say when you told him that? Well, he, well he, he, you know, he obviously knows who I am. And, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll, I'll achieve it. But, yeah. uh, you know, he, he did that. We, we actually did a promo video as well um, ah. later on. And you can actually see it in one of his questions was, you know, what makes you think you can do this? And he sort of giggles. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, just put it out there. But um, so, yeah, back in 2016, he was, him and his brother and Kate were just about to launch a mental health campaign called Heads Together, which, which was launched in 2017 at the um, London Marathon. So I was aware about mental health 
within the military. I'd seen it firsthand with some of my friends and everything else, but I wasn't aware how big it was about the whole of society, be it, you know, postnatal depression, young children, teenagers, all the way through. So I thought, perfect, that's the perfect challenge for this. And um, yeah, so that was it. And I then got introduced to the Royal Foundation following our meeting. Mm. You know, the first two questions were how much are you looking to raise? So for me, I, I set a target of, of a million pounds, which is a huge target. But for me, the enormity of the challenge had to reflect how much I was trying to raise. But then the second question was, you know, what is the message you're trying to promote? And I hadn't really thought about it in detail. You know, I'd done it because Harry had asked. So I said, that, I said, well, look, you know, physical activity helps your mental state. Oh, no, you, you can't use that. I said, well, why not? And he said, because it's not been scientifically proven. This is 2016 now. I said, that's fine. But I don't need a scientist to tell me that I feel good when I'm training. So I ignored him anyway and carried on promoting that message. Um, right. so, yeah, so that, that's what I did. I, mean, I then, you know, Royal Foundation came on board. The Heads Together campaign launched in April 2017. And very much it was the, the focus the topic of conversation and a lot of the big corporates were getting about uh, behind it, which was, which is perfect for me because I was at this time was also trying to look for sponsorship. So you can imagine being a non-cyclist trying to get sponsorship, going into some of these, uh, these board meetings and say, right, well, I'm going to cycle the world's longest road, break a world record and raise a million pounds for mental health. So a lot of them thought I had mental health problems myself, but, um, but thankfully, uh, thankfully St. James's place wealth management, came on board, a FTSE 100 company, you know, and it fitted their corporate social responsibility and we clashed at the right time. And yeah, so I got some great sponsorship behind me. No, that's fantastic. So when did you actually set out on that? Tell us a little bit more about that, Dean, because, well, I mean, tell us, I mean, obviously some, there's a lot of training involved to get to that point anyway. How long did it even take you? So the world record was 117 days. I was aiming for 110 and it wasn't because I wanted to smash it by a week. Going into this project, I wasn't a cyclist, but what I was very good at was that military planning and precision. You know, we did it in the security industry as well. So I just took a military set of orders, put it on the challenge and just crossed out ammunition. And then as I um, evolved as a cyclist, I introduced that into the plan. So when I was looking at all the potential scenarios and situations, there was things that we could factor for, but there's certain things that are out of your control. I call it controlling the uncontrollable, you know, is natural disasters, coups, you know, third party influence. So I gave myself that, we call it military fudge, that one week fudge. So should I encounter any of that, it was eaten into that week and not into my, my record. I trained for a year. I looked at this, the environments I was going in. I, no, in the military, I was very fortunate to have been in the Arctic, the desert, the jungle, but I'd never done it on a bike for eight to 10 hours. So the Atacama Desert in Chile is, was 47 degrees, over 120 degrees Fahrenheit for a week. Wow. Yeah, 47 degrees for a whole week. And then up in Alaska, it was minus 18. So I went out to Dubai and I did some heat training for two weeks just to satisfy myself that I could, you know, under duress, operate in those environments. The biggest climb you do on the Tour de France is like 21 to 23 kilometers. My biggest climb was 67 kilometers from sea level to four and a half thousand meters in Ecuador. You know, it was, it was huge. But again, I put myself in those situations beforehand and, you know, started really mentally and physically stronger as I started to know a bit more about cycling. So that, that was a year's training. And I then set off on the 1st of February, 2018. 
So you set off. It's a long path. There's lots of different things happen. But just give us some of the highlights along, along it. People who haven't had a chance to read your book yet. You had to dig deep at some times, I'm sure. I know you have. I read in your book. What's your most memorable part of that experience? Most memorable parts, you know, I, I actually, I completed it in 99 days. I took 10 days off South America world record and 17 days off the other, off the main record and came the first man in history to do it under 100 days. But for me, it was... Oh, you smashed it, well done. Yeah, yeah, but of the 99 days, there's only really 10 days that stand out because I was so focused, I had an objective to hit that I was just fixated on that. But the, the big highlights for me was breaking the first world record in, in Cartagena. Obviously, at the end as well, seeing my, my family. But I decided to go from south to north. Having spoken to the previous record holders, they all went north-south. And so I changed my plan on their information. I, sp- I approached them with those three questions. What worked? What didn't? And if you were going to do it again, what did you do differently? So all their issues were in South and Central America, nothing in North and Canada. So I decided to turn it on its head and approach from the south. Coming that route, I had a great tailwind through Peru, 2,500 kilometers of tailwind. Although I got food poisoning twice in Peru, I crashed my bike in Chile, and I got knocked off my bike in Colombia. There was loads of issues uh, along the way. But I got into North America on day 70, and I was 14 days ahead of the world record. I was like, perfect. You know, I can take a couple of days rest if need be. You know, the the pressure was almost off. You know, it's like, unless I get eaten by a grizzly, it should be fine. My wife who's the campaign director and runs everything, keeps every, all the distractions away from me, rang me five times. And I thought, my initial thought, there was something wrong with the children. Because getting into America for me was a big boost. Because everyone spoke the language, the culinary options were a lot better. But also, having spoken to the previous holders, all their issues were in South and Central America. So we counter any issues going forward. So it was a big motivator hitting America. But yeah, an hour into it, my wife called me and they said, we'd be kindly invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding, which just changed the dynamic completely of this challenge. So for me to get back in time for the wedding, I had to be finished by day 102. So going into that phone call, I was 14 days ahead of the record. 10 minutes later, I'm now a day behind. So you can imagine, you know, mixed emotions of being invited to someone like that. Yeah. Also frustration. I got to Lubbock. The following day, and we had 60 mile an hour winds and tornadoes, so I was grounded for 24 hours. So I was now two days behind. But there's an app on your phone called Windy TV, which gives you the strength and directions of the winds forecasted every hour for the next two weeks. So that's what I did. I made, I put pen to paper and made, alternated the plan. I had to cycle 360 miles in the next 34 hours to miss the next weather window. And I just played chess with Mother Nature through North America. I had 17 days plan for North America I cycled in 11 and a half and so I gained that time I got to Whitehorse was about a week outside from the end and I thought right the world record secure I've gained enough time to get back in time for this wedding I then received another phone call about a professional cyclist so when we are going back a bit slightly when we did my sponsorship marketing team did the SWOT analysis the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities and threats. The only weakness that came out was my arrogance towards the cycling community, which I just took as a strength. And so this gentleman had just come out on social media that day. He's got three other endurance world records. He, he denounced that he was going to cycle the Pan-American Highway in August. 
and be the first man to do it under 100 days. So I was like, great. So for me, I wasn't comfortable breaking the record and going to the wedding. It was, I will be the first man to do it under 100 days. So I had to cycle for 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 to come in in 99 days, 12 hours, 56 minutes. So well done, well done. But the great thing about that story is, you know, we had a plan, you know, we had a basic plan, but actually the success of this was being able to react to the situation on the ground. Things don't always go to plan. Look at 2020. Things don't always go to plan, but you just need to react to what's happening in front of you. Don't get too, too consumed in it. Just find a, a solution. I had my start point and I had my objective. You know, the road wasn't straight. It's just how we're going to get there. Oh, that, that's wonderful, Dean. Thanks for that. What an incredible, incredible adventure amongst many of the ones you've had. You know, I've got a couple more questions, and I know that anyone listening, you're welcome to ask any questions that you may have. Dean is here with us, and, and anyone listening, and feel free to write me, and we'll ask anything that you'd like us to ask. But, Dean, uh, what an incredible story. And I know there's so many other things that I could ask you, but this is something that I, I, I like to know. You've done a lot of work with charity. You were talking on that. Uh, you were talking about the Heads, uh, heads Together uh, with the Royal Family. Um, you have your own initiative as well, I believe, on mental health. Yeah. Mental health has been around as long as we've all been around. Yeah. But it's definitely getting more of a headline, especially this year. Tell us a little bit more about your involvement in it. And then give us a snapshot of what people can do to kind of strengthen their mind, especially at the moment, especially with everything going on. What's your take on it? So obviously, um, you know, I, going into this, my one of my wife and I have a charity called Breaking Chains, and and our focus there is modern slavery and human trafficking, and but there's a lot of synergy with with mental health. So when Harry asked, would I do it for this? You know, I, I said yes, of course. I didn't at the time. I didn't know much about mental health. It's only when I I then decided yes, I would do that. I, I learned so much about it. I know when. I was chatting to the Royal Foundation. It was very much, you know, there's three coping mechanisms for mental health. One is, you know, communication. And, and that's, that's a, key, a key one is, is communication. The other is medication, uh, which we always want to try and avoid. But for me, it was that physical activity. So obviously now with, with COVID and everything else, you know, you've almost, people need to try and stay on top of their physical health but also, you know, keep that communication lines going. Obviously, if you can't meet people face to face, there's obviously Zoom. I understand Zoom isn't the same as having a friend in the house. But for me, I will always be banging the drum about the physical activity one. Um, I'm not saying go cycle 14,000 miles because that's ludicrous. Even if you just go for a walk each day, even 20 minutes, you know, just do do something will help your mental state and obviously we're very fortunate here with the weather we've touched on that you know that itself yeah. is a coping mechanism for mental health and i can only imagine how difficult it is for people back in the uk who can't see their families they've only got three hours of daylight you know i used to live in aberdeen it's only about three hours of daylight and everything else so but the big one i did learn is is finding out second hand you know when i decided to do this charity i wasn't aware about those really close to me you know very close to me that had their own issues and they just said well i, I didn't think you'd understand so uh, you know having a, a listening ear is, is key and i think the best way to do it, you know mental health doesn't discriminate just assume everyone has mental health problems in some shape or form and i think that's probably accurate to say they may not admit it but you know it's also trying to see those um 
telltale signs, which can be quite difficult with mental health. You know, it's very difficult to say a person's got mental health because it's neurological. You can't see it. It's not a physical uh, issue. It's, it's a mental health issue. But then when those do start opening up and you, you then start realising um, that there's bigger problems. And one of the things I was really um, interested to find out, you know, especially in the military, because the military are very quick to throw post-traumatic stress because you've been in the military. In fact, 75% of those from the military, actually it was issues before they even joined the military from their childhood. It was just triggered mm. that they'd encountered yeah. in the military that, 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 that set them off. Um, yeah, yeah, oh, you're probably right. Yeah. Mental health, I, it, it's a tough one and, and we're doing everything we can and that people are doing what they can. There's more, more available now than ever, I believe, especially with everything. And this year just puts it in, in under the microscope, I guess. Dean, we're going to wrap it up in a second, but I always ask this question that everyone always speaks to, and I'd love to ask you this as well. It doesn't matter if it's been 2020, it could be any year. What piece of positivity would you like to leave everyone with who's, who's actually listening to this live now and who will listen to this at a later date? You know, maybe it's something where you had to dig deep at a particular moment in your life, or it's just something you live by now. We'd love to hear that. Yeah. One of, the, one of the things I always say, and I always been instructed on the commando course, and I, I keep doing it now because I get a lot of messages from people, and you know, I want to do this, but I'm not too sure. It was called anticipation is worse than participation. But you are your biggest enemy. A lot of people will overthink things. Now, for example, if I was to say to someone on the street, right, you're going to run a marathon next week, they will tell me every reason why they can't do that rather than every reason why they can't. And, you know, I, I love it when people then do do an activity or do do something and then they sort of look back on and reflect and say, actually, that wasn't that bad. And I think that's that's my key message to people. Anticipation is worse than participation. Just go for it and you will surprise yourself. I do believe that nothing is impossible. It just means it hasn't been done yet. That's, that's all it is. Mm. With the right sort of mindset and approach, which needs to obviously be quite positive, and anything's achievable. I'm very fortunate that I generally believe that anyone can break a world record. Um, I'm not really, really saying that, I generally believe that anyone can break a world record if, if you have that time and attention to come to train all the time. You know, I was very fortunate. My wife takes all those distractions away from me. You know, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position. She runs the businesses and everything else. And I've got that support from her. And that's the key one as well, is having that support network. There's nothing worse knowing that you're upsetting your family by being out on the bike or running up the mountain as well. So, um, but yeah, but if you have the right support network and right mindset, anything's possible. No, oh, I love that. Dean, thank you very much. And just before we all go, I just want to draw everyone's attention to the fact, Dean, just give us a quick plug for your book again. Anyone listening now and who will be listening at a later time? Yeah, so the book's called Relentless. You can, at the moment, you can get it on Amazon and it's on audio. But for the US listeners, it's coming out in hardback and paperback in Barnes and Noble and all good bookshops. Fantastic. Dean, you are a gentleman. Thank you very, very much for your time today. It's great to see you again. We'll be speaking again really soon, I'm sure of it. And everyone who's listening today, you've been listening to another British American Business Council Los Angeles live webcast event. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks a lot, Dean. Take care, mate. Thank you for listening. 
please like and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favourite platform. Your likes and reviews really do help us reach new listeners.